This is a time of year when school lets out, when summer begins, when thoughts turn to vacation and relaxation. But it's also the time of year when students graduate. Graduation is a time of reflection on the past and anticipation of the future. It's also a time for graduation ceremonies when students are both honored for the past and challenged and given direction for the future. I was at a graduation ceremony Friday night and there were several people who spoke with challenging words, but I have to be honest, I couldn't discern a real clear direction. One person said, you've got to take risks. Another said, be careful. One person said, life will be painful. Another said, whatever you do, be sure to have fun because that's the most important thing. One person said, love others and honor your parents. Another said, don't worry about what anyone else thinks. You've got to live for yourself. And I came away thinking that those graduates got a lot of mixed signals. A lot of signs pointing in every different direction. And that's got to be frustrating for you young people. And so I want to give you some direction this morning. Because I am convinced that deep down in your heart of hearts, you are saying, I want my life to count. I want to make a difference. When I get to the end of my life, I want to be able to look back and say that I fulfilled the purpose for which I was created. And that's not found by following many of the signposts. Because life is more than getting an education, finding a job, marrying the right person, raising a family, gathering security symbols, and settling into ruts of routine. And to affirm that, you simply have to look down the path to the lives of those in their middle years who have sought life in those things. And when they have settled down and when those goals have gotten nearer to accomplishment, what do you see? You see a restlessness. You see an impatience with business as usual. And you see an overriding boredom because those icons of security that once seemed to promise so much don't satisfy. And if you will look even further down the road to the lives of many senior citizens, what do you see? There is either a sense of uselessness because they have retired and work was their reason for living, or there's a sense of hopelessness because they realize that they can no longer hang on to those things that they have accumulated. Most of the signposts that say, life this way, are bogus. They are dead-end streets. So whether you are a graduating senior here this morning or whether you are a disillusioned adult, as you are considering the signs, you've got to be saying, isn't God up to something more exciting in this world than this? I want to be part of it. 
So what direction do I go? What can I do to make my life count? Where can I go to make a difference? How can I fulfill the purpose for which I was created? And some of you may be a little bit surprised at my answer to that question. Because whatever else God may want you to do in your life specifically, He wants you first and foremost to be an active, committed, involved member in His church. You say, church? That's not exciting. That's not the cutting edge. That's not where it's happening. Well, if you react that way, you're not alone because that's not an uncommon reaction. In his book, What Americans Believe, George Barna records the results of a poll taken of over a thousand adults. And a couple of the questions that they were asked caught my eye. When asked if the Christian faith is relevant to the way you live today, one half of those polled said yes. But when asked if Christian churches in your area are relevant to the way you live today, only one-fourth of those polled said yes. So 75% of those polled see churches as irrelevant. And that's one of the nicer things that people are saying about churches today. You also hear that they're full of hypocrites, they're greedy, self-righteous, anemic, boring, lifeless. That attitude is captured in the famous remark by Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, who said, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, you have to look a lot more redeemed. And I think if we're honest, we have to admit that there's some justification for those charges. But I am convinced that they are true only because the church so easily forgets what it really is. You see, the church is not some man-made organization. It's not like the Elks or the Moose Lodge. It was established by Jesus Christ. In fact, it's the only organization Jesus ever started. And Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says it was so valuable to him that he purchased it with his own blood. And Matthew 16, 18 says it's so important to him that he personally is building it and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Ephesians 1.23 says something that is just mind-boggling to me. It says that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that sounds pretty relevant to me. The church is not a water boy in the game of life. The church is the key player in what God is doing in this world. And my prayer for us as a local church is that we would realize who we are and that we would not only be relevant in our community, but that we would be revolutionary. And I know of no better way to focus on who we are than to go back to our roots. And so we're going to spend the next year or so in the book that describes the birth, the growth, and the impact of the early church. And that's the book of Acts. 
And the first couple verses in the book of Acts really give us some general things about the book. Verse 1 says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up. Now, who wrote the book of Acts? Well, we're not told, but it's clear here because he refers to an earlier account that he sent to Theophilus. What earlier book was written to Theophilus? What's the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 1 and verse 3 says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So he refers to his Gospel as the first account. Now he's writing the second account. So Acts is really second Luke. Or it's Luke volume 2. Now, we know from Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14 that Luke was a physician. Early writers such as Eusebius and Jerome tell us he was from the city of Antioch, which may explain why of the 15 times that the city of Antioch is mentioned in the New Testament, 14 of those are in the book of Acts. So Luke liked to throw in the name of his hometown. Acts is a long book. It's 28 chapters and 1,007 verses, which means if we cover 20 verses a week, we can cover it in a year. We're going to get through five today, so you figure that out. But though it's long, it's also a very personal book because Luke is writing from the perspective of an eyewitness. We find in the book that he traveled with Paul on his second missionary journey. He traveled with Paul on his third missionary journey. He stayed in Judea and Caesarea when Paul was in prison there. And he actually traveled to Rome with Paul and endured the shipwreck in Acts chapter 27. And that explains why Paul, speaking about Luke in Philemon 24, says he is my fellow worker. And he was close to Paul because Paul said about him in Colossians 4.14, he is the beloved physician. And I think Acts reflects the personal nature of Luke's involvement because it names more than a hundred people in the book, often given their titles, often given their hometowns. It also names over a hundred distinct locations because Luke was there and he was traveling along and he names those places as he went. Now, who is the reader of this book? Well, it's Theophilus. We don't know much else about him except his name. Some think he may have been an ugly child because when the doctor saw him, he said, that's Theophilus' baby I ever saw. <laughs> Theophilus is a Greek name. It means lover of God. And for that reason, some have thought that it might be a generic title for all the believers, that he's writing to those who are lovers of God. That's a neat idea, but it really doesn't work because in Luke chapter 1, he's addressed as Theophilus and he's given a title, Most Excellent Theophilus. That's the same title used later in the book of Acts to address Felix and Festus who were governors. And so Theophilus was an individual. He had a title which probably tells us that he was a high-ranking official in the Roman government. 
I like to think that Theophilus got saved between the writing of Luke and Acts. Because in the Gospel of Luke, he, he writes to him and calls him most excellent Theophilus, gives him his title. When he comes to the book of Acts, he just calls him Theophilus. He drops the title. And I think he drops the title perhaps because in the process of reading the Gospel of Luke, he came to faith in Christ and now he's a brother. And so he doesn't have to use the title in addressing him in the book of Acts. What's the book of Acts about? We have an indication here in verse 1. It says, the first account was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what's that tell us about Acts? Acts is the continuation of what Jesus did and taught. Your title of the book probably reads The Acts of the Apostles. That was later added as a title to this book. I think a better title for this book would be that it is The Acts of Jesus. Because this is the account of what Jesus continues to do and teach. In the Gospels, He did and He taught through His physical body. In the book of Acts, He does and He teaches through His spiritual body, which is the members of the church. The Gospels describe for us Incarnation 1. The book of Acts just describes for us Incarnation 2. In the book of Ephesians... Paul uses two figures to help us understand what the church is really like. At the close of chapter 1, he says the church is a body. But it's not just any body because he says in Ephesians 1.23, it is Christ's body. And then at the end of chapter 2, he says that the church is a building. But it's not just any building. He says in Ephesians 2.21, it's a holy temple, a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so the church is a body and a building. And what do those two entities have in common? Well, both a body and a building are inhabited by a person. And that's what we find in the book of Acts. We find the person, Jesus Christ, inhabiting His body, His temple, the church, and seeing how He lives out His life through them. Now, the book of Acts is an important book in understanding the New Testament because it really fills the gap between the Gospels and the Epistles. If we didn't have Acts, you would finish John and you would go right into Romans and you'd have a lot of questions. Because the Gospels end with a handful of Jews gathered in Jerusalem. They're talking about a kingdom that's going to come for Israel. You come to the book of Romans and you find an apostle writing that letter that isn't even mentioned in the Gospels. He's not one of the twelve. He's writing to Gentiles in Rome and he's talking about how he's planning to, to travel to the uttermost parts of the earth. How do we understand that transition? The book of Acts. And so the book of Acts is a continuation of what Jesus began. And notice verse 2. It says, He began in the Gospel until the day when He was taken up after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. Now, why does he mention, before he says Jesus was ascended, why does he mention the orders he gave to the apostles? Well, because that, in essence, is the passing of the baton. Because what were the orders that Jesus gave to the apostles? Well, they're recorded several places. Let me read Matthew 28, 19. 
Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So the orders are essentially, Go make disciples, baptize and teach. You could really boil that down to do and teach. The Gospel of Luke tells us all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now he turns to the apostles and he says, I want you to do and teach because I'm ascending into heaven. Now how are they going to accomplish that? What, did, what were Jesus' next words in Matthew chapter 28? And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Jesus says, I want you to go and teach, but I am going to live my life through you and accomplish that. One night several years ago, hurricane-force winds battered a city on the East Coast. And in the morning, people emerged from their homes to assess the damage. And the power from the storm quickly became apparent as one investigator found a flimsy plastic drinking straw embedded in a telephone pole. Now, under normal circumstances, you can't get a flimsy plastic drinking straw into a telephone pole. But with a powerful enough wind, it goes in like a spike. How can the church penetrate this ungodly world with the good news that God has given us to proclaim we can't do it in our own strength. But in His strength, no one can stop us. See, they didn't come up to that telephone pole and say, my, what a flimsy plastic drinking straw. No, they said, my, what a powerful wind. And that's what God is about. The book of Acts describes 120 unlikely people when it starts out and you know what they did? They were flimsy plastic drinking straws. Chapter 17, verse 6 says they turned their world upside down. Why? Because His power worked through them. And we can do the same thing today if we will learn to depend upon His power working through us. Now this morning, I want to look at the prelude to power. And that's in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1. And there I want to pick out four things that they had that prepared them to be empowered by God. And we're only going to get started in them this morning. First one is the conviction that Jesus is alive. Notice verse 3. To these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus presented Himself alive. That's what puts Christianity 10,000 miles ahead of its nearest competitor in the field of religion. Jesus rose from the dead, and He is alive. When people talk to me today about these self-appointed messiahs like Jim Jones and David Koresh, I only have one question. Did he rise from the dead? Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then he's not the messiah. Now, what's interesting to me here is that 
Jesus didn't just gather them together, appear to them, and then go right back to heaven. It says here, He appeared to them for 40 days. Now why did He do that? Well, I think He had two reasons in mind, and they're in this verse. One is, He wanted them to be convinced. Now why did they need to be convinced that He had risen? Well, because they were about to face a whole lot of persecution. And Jesus didn't want them to get into the midst of the persecution and then say, well, you know, maybe I just imagined that I saw Him. He wanted them to be convinced. And He also wanted them to be convinced because they were going to be witnesses to what? To His resurrection. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 32, it says... Peter says, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Now, how did he convince them? Well, it says here that he presented himself to them by many convincing proofs, such as entering a room where the doors were locked, such as showing him the wounds in his hands and his feet, such as eating with them and drinking with them. In fact, I think... He probably did some other things that aren't recorded in the Scripture because John chapter 20, verse 30 says, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. He convinced them over that 40 days that He had risen. There's a second reason, I think, that He hung around for those 40 days. And we see that at the end of verse 3. That is that He wanted to speak to them of the things concerning the kingdom of of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, that's the place where God reigns. Today, it's in the lives of those who have surrendered themselves to Him. He reigns in our lives. In the future, it will be when Jesus comes back and sets up that kingdom on earth. He spent these 40 days talking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, why did He do that? Because that was the message they were going to teach. And we will see that message throughout the book of Acts. In fact, the very last verse in the book of Acts ends by telling us that Paul was in Rome for two years doing what? Preaching the kingdom of God. And so the the first prelude to power was the conviction that Jesus is alive. Second prelude to power is the dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And that's in verses 4 to 8. Notice verse 4. And gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. They had gotten their orders. They had witnessed the risen Christ. The disciples might have assumed that they were ready. But Jesus says, wait. Why? Because though they had the knowledge... They didn't have the power. You see, they were still flimsy plastic drinking straws. And they needed to wait on that mighty wind. Now, it's interesting to me here that Jesus commands them not to leave Jerusalem. What does that tell you? They probably would have left Jerusalem. Now, why would they leave Jerusalem? But when you think about it, the disciples were not from Jerusalem. Where were they from? They were from Galilee. So when Jesus ascended into heaven, their natural response would be, well, Jesus is gone, we'll go back home. 
So they might have headed off to Galilee. And Jerusalem was not especially a city that they enjoyed being in because it's a city that hated Jesus, crucified Jesus. It's a city where they fled from the Romans. It's a city where Peter denied that he knew Christ. So they weren't really happy hanging out in Jerusalem. So Jesus has to say to them, stay here and wait. Wait for what? Wait for the promise of the Father. Now what's the promise of the Father? Well, we're going to find out in verse 5 that the promise of the Father is the coming of the Spirit of God. When did the Father promise that? We know in Ezekiel chapter 36, God makes a promise about the new covenant. And here's what He says there in verse 26. He says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put My Spirit within you. There's the promise. With the new covenant, God is going to place His Spirit within us. Joel chapter 2 says a similar thing. It's quoted in Acts 2.17. God says, and, I, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of My Spirit upon all mankind. So Jesus says, wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. And then He spells it out at the end of verse 4. He says, which... You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The event they were to wait for was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now John had used almost these exact words in Matthew 3.11. He said, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When's that going to happen? Jesus says, in a few days from now. To be exact, it was ten days later on the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2. Now, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, whatever you say it is, it has to be something altogether new, and altogether different from anything that happened prior to this. Because the Father promised that it was coming, John the Baptist looked forward to it in anticipation, and Jesus said, wait for it, it's going to happen in a few days. Now I say that because there are a lot of people who confuse the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the reason they confuse the two is because if you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. But see, that simply tells us that when the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred, they were also filled with the Holy Spirit. But those are two separate things because prior to this day, people had been filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, we read that Zecharias, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist were all three filled with the Holy Spirit. That's something that happened many times in the past. What was going to happen in Acts chapter 2, what Jesus told them to wait for is something altogether unique, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what is that? 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the Spirit of God takes an individual and immerses that individual into the body of Christ, into the church. 
You see, that could not have happened prior to the day of Pentecost because there was no church. And historically, it's also the day that the Spirit of God came to take up residence in this world. And where did He take up permanent residence? He took up residence in the church. You see, prior to this, the Spirit of God would come upon individuals and He would leave. He would come upon individuals and He would leave. On the day of Pentecost, He came and made His permanent residence in the lives of believers, in the lives of the church. You see, that couldn't have happened prior to the day of Pentecost either because there was no body and there was no building for Him to inhabit. He now comes and inhabits the church. That's why Jesus said in John 16, 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go away, I will send Him to you. You see, Incarnation 1, Jesus Christ had to leave before Incarnation 2 could be established. And Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away so that you can have the Spirit of God living within you. What are the advantages? Well, let me just name a couple of them. One is accessibility. You know, oftentimes we think back and say, boy, it would have been nice to be one of the disciples and be walking with Jesus all the time and just following Him around everywhere He went. That wasn't really a great advantage because in those days, Jesus could only be in one place at one time relating to one person. When Legion, the guy with all the demons, was delivered, he wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said, I can't, or you can't go with me because you have to go home, and I don't happen to be going that way. When Jairus wanted to have his daughter healed, he had to wait because there was somebody else with a need who came first. When Jesus went up on the mountain and took the three disciples with him, what did the other disciples do? They had to hang around and entertain each other. You see, we have the advantage today in that I have every bit of Jesus' attention all the time. And I don't have to share Him with anybody else. He's looking at me. He's talking to me. He's relating to me. Whenever I need Him, He's right here. I have Him all the time. But you know what's amazing? So do you. Why? Because by His Spirit... He indwells each one of us. We have accessibility. What a wonderful privilege. It's to our advantage. And the second thing I want to note this morning is power. When the disciples walked with Jesus, they witnessed His power. They watched Him multiply loaves. They watched Him heal the sick. They listened to Him teach. But the power was next to them. It was in Jesus. But when Jesus left and the Spirit came, verse 8 of chapter 1 says, you will receive what? Power. And no longer will the power be in Jesus next to you. The power will be within you. And next week we're going to see how that power is demonstrated, both in the lives of the apostles and in our lives today. We're going to stop there. But in closing, I want you to look at something with me. I want you to turn over to the last couple verses in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verse 30. 
Speaking about Paul, it says, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That's a funny way to end a book. And my response is, where is the sincerely yours? Where's the wrap-up? Where's the goodbye? I mean, you get the idea that you could turn the page here and, and, and come to another adventure, because he, he doesn't really stop. And I think there's a reason for that. I think this book is unfinished because it's still being written. This is Acts Volume 1. We today are writing Acts Volume 20. And Volume 20 may be the last in the series. I hope it is. You see, this is an unfinished book because God wants us to realize that He is still working in this world through His church, accomplishing His purposes. Let me ask you a question in closing. How is your chapter going to read? Will it say that your life counted? Will it say that you made a difference? Will it say that God took a flimsy plastic drinking straw and put them together with a lot of other flimsy plastic drinking straws and turned the world upside down? It can say that. If you will simply invest your life in the thing that Jesus invested His life in, the church. We're going to close this morning by standing and singing together hymn number 252. I don't know how the Lord may you respond. If your life is described as one that is seeking after meaning down all the wrong avenues, finding no fulfillment, I'd like to invite you today to come forward and come to know the one who rose from the dead and who can give you life. If you're here today as a Christian and you've followed a lot of the wrong signposts, maybe you need to make a fresh commitment to our Lord. I give you the opportunity to come forward today and make that expression publicly before all that are here. And maybe you're here today and, and you're a committed Christian and you would like to join this fellowship of believers. You come as we sing as well. 252.
sing those words that you can mean them. I surrender all. I ask you to sit down for just a moment so you can see.